During the course of the day, we'll be uh, going through quite a number of practices. And I'm not suggesting that you go home and immediately, starting tonight or tomorrow, start doing like 10 practices. But uh, I will give uh, a sheet probably after lunch that gives some suggestions for how to take what we've been doing home and work with it. And the general suggestion is simple. It's to, you'll have a, a number of practices and some will resonate with you more than others. And the general suggestion would be to do one or two a week. But if you want to, we'll have a, quite a number of practices, the breath, the whole body, uh, hearing, different postures, elements and so forth. And if you wanted to, you could do one or two a week and just have like a, uh, particularly if you're coming back for the whole series, you could do one or two a week for the next four weeks, right? And that, and just really, I find that it's, it's important to make it your own. You have to stay with it for at least a week. Could be two weeks. And just stay with one or two, not too many. I found that's helpful. So I'll give that sheet out uh, after lunch, but that gives some suggestions for how to bring it into daily life. So it could just be, say, okay, I'm just going to stay with the breath. I'm going to just stay with the breath for the next month or the next year. <laughs> my primary body practice for my first three years was the breath. Three years, not much else. You know, walking meditation also. I like to s- sit and listen to creaks. I just would sit and listen to creaks and so forth. So that's a suggestion for how to bring this in. I realize that particularly for those who are less familiar with mindfulness of the body, there's a lot of material both in terms of some of the uh, framework as well as the practices. But the key to making it your own is to simplify, just do one thing for a week. It'd be great if we had a class, we come back in a week, compare notes and so forth. But uh, maybe you can find a a technique that we often use in our programs is to uh, have what we call buddies, where you just find one or two people in the group, either that you know or that you haven't known before, and you um, check in once a week or so. It's a really, it's a really nice technique. I'll try to. Uh, that's that's like the uh, what the um, socializing part of our day long. We will set up opportunity for that. So I want to uh, give some time now just to ask if there are any questions about the practices, and then I'm going to say a little bit more about the practices and about the importance of mindfulness of the body. So I wanted to see if there are any questions about the practices we've done so far, which are mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the whole body or parts of the body, uh, particularly in different postures. We also did some mindfulness of hearing, again, which is not in the, not described in the text, but it's one that uh, we often use, really opening up to the different senses, I think, as part of mindfulness. The body will do that with our lunch, for example. Any questions just about am I doing it right uh, or anything you found, any insights or anything you want to report? And we have a microphone so everyone can hear as well as possible. So we can, any, any questions or reflections? Good afternoon. My name is Sophia. Hi. Um, I found as I invited my mind to sort of quiet during the walking meditation that it allowed my body an opportunity to 
as I was very surprised to witness, to get very loud about how it was feeling. Yeah. Um, and I'm shamefully aware of I, how little attention I pay to the voice of the body, yeah. what hurts, what what's tight, what doesn't feel well. Or um, I, It just was shocking how much yeah. was coming up in terms of how it was feeling, and I, I obviously don't pay much attention. Um, but as in... in mindful meditation where we sort of don't follow our thoughts and don't follow you know, trains of thought, just notice them arising and falling, and sort of letting them go. And it, yeah. uh, What would be your advice in terms of what's coming up with the body's story, how it's feeling or how it's yeah. hurting? Um, follow it, uh, explore it, uh, just notice it, let it go, invite it to go. Um, what, what would be... So, quite great question. Sophia. Sophia means wisdom. <laughs> The <laughs> uh, uh, question about, uh, first of all, uh, on the basis of noticing that a lot was coming up in being attentive to the body. Maybe some parts of the body don't feel so good. There could be thoughts about whatever it might be. I should do this or do that or make some changes, maybe. I don't know if that no, was just, happening. Just actual sensate feeling, muscles. Actually finding muscles maybe tight or... Or, or, or that, um, and how to, how to work with that. So I think it's, it's good to uh, distinguish between a few different ways to respond to that. I think, um, and this comes in more in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the first three foundations are primarily just tracking what's there. Okay? And so then we would just tra- track it and learn how to track it. The fourth is about actually responding. And, and being skillful. So it's helpful in, in uh, working with mindfulness to know that there's a distinction between just the being with, the tracking, the noticing, without trying to intervene or change anything, and then what's a skillful response. So that's a useful distinction to bear in mind. And so we, would, we could do both. Uh, first, we would really be present to what's happening, notice, uh, Notice the changes. Notice where the mind goes. I mean, we, we're not really giving so much attention today to studying the mind, but obviously when we're attentive to the body, the mind will, and the emotions may do quite a lot, right? Can say things like, this shouldn't be happening, or can label it, conceptualize it, and so forth. So here we want to stay, if you can, with the actual sensations and just track it. Watch when your mind goes off bring it back, and so forth. And then the response, you know, the response might be, if you're, let's say you're meditating at home and you noticed yourself, you started off meditating and noticed that there's a lot of tightness. Well, skillful response might be, oh, why don't I do five or ten minutes of stretching and then come right back to my meditation, right? That might be a skillful response. Or to attend in some way to, to the body, have it, it's tight. Or, you know, then there might be the level of reflection where I said, I, you know, I want to get back to whatever, doing yoga or whatever. It could be response on that level as well. So does that, does that help? Thanks. Okay, please, um, in the uh, third row. Thank you. Hi. So... I feel like in my meditation I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of distracting thoughts and yeah. I know that's a natural sort of flow 
in and out, but I think I have more in than out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering if there's a better way to move past or beyond that, or if that's just a matter of practice and time. Uh, to have a lot of thoughts occurring? Or to have less thoughts. Yeah. To, um, so question is, tell me if I've got it, is just that in practicing, just noticing a lot of thoughts, and what is a skillful response to that? Yeah, and then also um, what would be the process of having less thought coming up? How, how, do, we have, uh, how do we have less thoughts? Well, we, we have a little bottle where we, <laughs> which we offer, which we're, we have a plan. This will help with the Spirit Rock Capital campaign. But, uh, see, but it's a great question um, because that is, uh, that's certainly how, when I started meditation, uh, I'll tell a little bit more of the story, but I actually had come from spending a year in Germany, and I wasn't sure what country I wanted to live in. And then I learned meditation, so I took in, out, Germany, United States. Germany, United States, like for maybe 20 minutes, and oh, in, out, Germany, United States. So it was like that. At the end of a month, my mind was a little more quiet, and I knew what country I wanted to live in. I came back to the U.S., but it's very natural. You know, actually, there's a, one of the great Thai meditation teachers, Achan uh, Buddhadasa, uh, who taught in southern Thailand, was one of the great 20th century teachers. He was once asked what he thought of Western civilization, and his answer was, lost in thought. Which always, uh, I always think of uh, Gandhi was also asked the same question. Someone you know that. What do you think of Western civilization? And he said, Gandhi's answer was a little different. He says, it would be a good idea. <laughs> uh, so um, so it's, that's just to say that um, our conditioning for many of us is to have very active minds. And there are differences among us in that, but it's very, it's, it's very common. It's certainly true for me. And... Uh, so, um, a few things. First of all, uh, generally it does take time, so I have to stay patient. Uh, and so, um, doing regular meditation can make a huge difference. And particularly doing it regularly, every day, really helps. And uh, there also are, I guess I'll say maybe three or four things, it's a large topic. But uh, one thing is that can help is to have a body practice. I, this is actually getting into, I'll, I'll actually have this segue into the, the short talk I was going to give, which was going to be about the importance of mindfulness of the body, body. And it's really, really crucial in this culture. I think that mindfulness of the body plays a key role in actually for this culture coming to greater sanity for people in this culture. Because it's, it really helps us, I think, to move from uh, a strong cultural emphasis on thinking a lot of the time which, of course, comes with certain jobs, comes if you're on the computer a lot. It's pretty hard to be mindful of the body while on a computer. Yeah. And, and so I think uh, mindfulness of the body is very, very important culturally and socially. That if the whole culture would be mindful of the body, it would be a very different world. You know? And you know, on the uh, set of uh, quotations I gave, there was one by Reginald Ray, who wrote a very interesting book called uh, touching enlightenment, it's in the bookstore. 
finding realization in the body. He comes out of a more of a Tibetan tradition. But uh, I, I put his quote on the list of quotes, and he, sa- he says near the end of it, uh, I see the global crisis in its manifestations both in the West and the rest of the world as a, as a crisis of disembodiment. And we could, I could go in that direction a lot, but how to work with that practically, which was, was your question. Um, generally, being more mindful of the body is very, very helpful. And I think long-term, having ways to bring mindfulness of the body into one's daily life plays a key role for being more present and less preoccupied by thinking and less preoccupied by thinking in the meditations. Specifically, it's very helpful, can be very helpful to do a body practice like yoga or qigong or tai chi or just walking meditation before you sit. If you do that regularly, you'll find that there's generally less thinking in the meditation. You know, it's quite can be quite remarkable at times. We've one of the uh, training programs I've done. Uh, we we had uh, we did qigong twice a day in the training program, and then we meditated right afterwards. And people reported after doing half an hour of qigong in that meditation, there was considerably less thinking than there might have been just two hours ago. And it wasn't entirely because of the setting, it was like there's something about the relaxing of the body, being more present in the body, which basically calms the nervous system. A lot of our thinking is from a nervous, nervous system. I don't know. It's interesting to call it the nervous system, (laughs) isn't it? Um, And so body practices before meditation. Uh, Regularity of meditation plays a big role. Um, um, If you can, do meditation, do a meditation retreat or something like what we're doing. Do multiple day-longs because there's something about doing a more intensive practice like for a day or for three days or five days which really does remarkable training quickly. You know, when I did my first seven-day retreat, I had been doing like about two hours a day of meditation up till that time, which was a lot. It's hard for a lot of people to do that much. And when I did my first seven-day retreat, I think it was actually a 14-day retreat, I did the first 14-day retreat, and I I said subjectively, this feels like it moved my practice along by two years to do 14 days that intensively. So that's another possibility if if that appeals to you. And then the other, the other last thing I'll say about that is that um, I haven't mentioned it so much, but it's, we are, our usual meditation instructions are to give labels to our thinking, to label our thinking, planning, remembering, even to give specific labels for this or that uh, personal thought, like financial thinking or relationship thinking or something like that, to give it a name or conversation with Susan and to give it a very specific soft label in the mind. And then when it comes up, you'll maybe have five or six labels. Really notice your thinking. If you have a label, you'll tend to be able to notice the thinking more quickly. So that's, that's another very helpful technique. So there are maybe four, four ways to, to, uh, to develop. So let me segue with that into uh, saying a little bit more about the importance of mindfulness of the body. And I'll be brief here and then see if there are any more questions and also talk about the uh, practices that we're working with and 
give us a um, transition really to our practice during lunch. We'll be doing another form of, of mindfulness of the body with eating, which many of us do multiple times a day. And there are multiple op- opportunities. And also, as we're doing this, I'll invite a practice which is more of an advanced practice, but it's something that I work with a lot in speech practice, which is that as you're listening to me, see if you can keep a little bit of body awareness, maybe a hand on the knee, feeling the cushion. Just do that in a light way, maybe 10 or 20% of your attention. It's actually a key tool that we use in bringing mindfulness to speech and communication, is basically not being 100% outer but having a little bit of inner attention. So remember, it's an advanced practice, so if it seems like too much, just, just uh, forget it. But, but it's, it can be useful. So I mentioned how this, uh, I think, mindfulness of the body is uh, a tremendously powerful practice. It can, I think it has implications uh, culturally and socially that I think we are in a culture which has very much developed the mental capacities without necessarily putting as much energy into our wisdom, our ethics, and uh, we've all, we found that we've also tended to have the mental capacity develop so much that we become disembodied and for, for many of us also cut off from our hearts. Right? And so for many of us, including myself, uh, I've had to undergo a kind of uh, what remedial training <laughs> to be able to come back to my body, to come back to my heart, and to begin to integrate them. I think that's true on a large scale culturally. And uh, again, I think it's connected with a number of different issues we could point out culturally and socially, all sorts of issues. You know? And so a lot of the contemporary work is trying to bring us back to our bodies, bring us back to our emotions, the work on, you know, some of you know, emotional intelligence, and then the integration, it's really crucial. And a lot of the schools, particularly in the Bay Area, are doing that more. And it's beautiful you know, to, to see that happening. But it's still, there's a lot of work. You know, there's a lot of work for all of us. Um, partly also because a lot, of the, a lot of our everyday lives, our work, having to be on the computer so much, being on electronic devices, it's hard to be mindful of the body. It's, it's, you know, it's like the mind is just there. So it's a challenge to do that. I think mindfulness of the body is also crucial for health. You know, and I think you know, a lot of the innovative work in medicine is all about the mind-body-heart relationship. And mindfulness of the body and really knowing one's body and tuning into it I think is also really crucial for health. So I think these practices, I think, are in the long run quite profound and can have a big impact. I know they have on my life. I mentioned that I was, you know, I think conditioned, like many people, to be primarily mental. Even though I was, um, when I was a teenager and up to the age of 20, I was actually a competitive athlete. I was a competitive swimmer and swam a lot and went through a lot of training at, you know, at uh, age group, AAU, and at uh, the level of the university. And, but I wasn't really aware of my body that much. It's interesting. You can be very physical and not aware of the body. Isn't that interesting? You know, and that was true of me. And I remember uh, when I was a student, I spent a year in Germany, and I had this very um, kind of difficult but insightful experience where I was walking. I, I was living on a farm and taking German classes 
every morning and I would walk along a river. It was in a little town called, uh, uh, what was it, Schwäbisch uh, Hall. Anyone, anyone know Germany? By this near Stuttgart, it's by this beautiful river, it's a beautiful walk. But I, at a certain point, I just noticed that I was thinking all the time. And I said to myself, walking along this beautiful river, beautiful scenery, kind of noticing it, but mostly thinking, I said, I'm just like consciousness on a pole. <laughs> it's funny, but it was not, you know, it was a little bit, oh my God, I'm consciousness on a pole. You know, that's not so good. And, and it was really a wake-up call, you know, and I, a short time after that I started meditation. And it was, it was quite different. And mindfulness of the body was my first revelation. It was felt like coming back to my senses. Being with the breath, being with the body, felt like returning to my senses. And I, I would be with a sunset, and partly with the meditative training, I could actually really be with the sunset, or really be with a tree, or really be with another person and not be so dominated by thinking. I think many of us have had that experience, you know, and know that. It's very, for me, it was very powerful. And so mindfulness of the body was right there at the beginning. I also started studying Tai Chi, and I had been studying yoga, and it was just all part of coming to have, be more attentive to the body. It's long-term work, right? Because the conditioning is strong, and then a lot of our daily lives are as they are. But it's been very crucial for me, and there are all sorts of body practices that we can do. You know, for me, you know, it's been important from the beginning, but I've also had cycles where my primary practices over several years were body practices. I did about two years, including a lot of time on retreat, where I was just aware of the whole body, you know? Just the whole body. When, I was, when my mind was leave, I would come back to my body. And I tried to bring that into daily life. And I did it enough so it kind of got almost like burned into consciousness as default awareness, some default body awareness. Also a lot of other practices, some of them more uh, connecting with energy centers. There, there are hundreds of body practices. The ones we have with this text are just a few of them. And there are all sorts of practices we can do. Um, but these are really enough to have mindfulness of the body get really strong. You know, the ones we're mentioning. The practices that we've gone so far through are mindfulness of breathing, which for many is fundamental practice. And as we saw in the guided practice, mindfulness of the breathing can be partly training us to be with the body, but also over time we start bringing in the wisdom dimension. When we were noticing change, that's tuning into impermanence. So we can be with mindfulness of the body, and I'll, I'll go into this more in the afternoon, but we can bring in the wisdom dimension of noticing change, because one of the fundamental ways that wisdom is talked about in uh, the teachings of the Buddha, for example, are to have insight into change and impermanence, to have insight into suffering and the roots of suffering, and to have insight into interdependence and the way that we're not these separate selves. Those are the three areas. And being with the breath can open us up to all those, but particularly I was focusing on change. So that's, being with the breath is the first practice. Then there's the being with the body in the different postures. We worked with sitting, walking, standing. We could also work with lying. It's pretty much the same practice. We try to be aware either of the whole body or of a part of the body in that posture. And then the third practice, the third grouping of practices that we've covered this morning, 
or really maybe pointing more to, is mindfulness of the body during different activities. And so I'll be inviting that for lunch, for example. That we can, can you stay with the body during lunch? It could be being with the smell, being with the movements of the body and bringing something to your mouth. It may require slowing down. We can be aware of different activities. Be aware of the body when you're going to the bathroom. Be aware if you're taking a walk. Uh, Just be aware of the body in that. Be aware if you are talking to someone. Can you keep awareness of the body? So those are our morning practices, okay? In the afternoon, we'll cover a few others. So let me just see if there are any uh, questions about anything I said or about the practices that maybe didn't have time to get asked before. Um, one here and then one in the back. Yeah. Hi, my name's Margaret. And actually, I have a leftover question okay. from a retreat. Yeah. <laughs> but I figured this is the per- you would be the perfect person okay, to ask great. about it, given this. I, I've been practicing for quite a number of years, and keeping my thoughts out isn't so difficult anymore. Yeah. But on retreat, I have just been stunned at how much pain can go on in my body and aware that it is not physical at all because it'll roam from one part yeah. of my body to the other. Yeah. But it, it, it's been just really stunning to me where I'm feeling like, I can't do this a second longer. And at one point in the last retreat, that was kind of like, you know, you're sitting here, you don't have cancer, you're not dying, so of course you can stand it. But it really has impressed me, the power of that. And I just would like to hear your comments on it. Yeah, yeah. So question about being on retreat and being... um, I don't know, amazed, even a little overwhelmed, maybe, with the unpleasant sensations that can be there in the body. Also wondering some about their origin. Is this simply at a physical level? Is there something else happening at the level of the body? Because it seems to be changing. It doesn't just stay. And so so wondering about that. So it's, um, yeah, it does happen on uh, retreats when when we stay in a sitting posture for many hours a day, it can also happen just in daily life. And there are, there are a few things to say, first of all. Um, given, given that, uh, it's actually a deep question, there's a lot there. Um, given that the, there is this mind-body relationship, we, we do find when we meditate, and we can find it in other ways as well, that um, there's a lot going on uh, that may be surfacing different kinds of stress or tension that we have in the body, which may be somewhat psychosomatic in nature. Could be. Could be related to the mind and the body. And that in the process of meditating, and particularly in retreats, there are often times where something almost like a, a, a kind of stress or tension that's been locked in the body uh, opens up to us, is not very pleasant, is revealed, and gets processed. That happens. That happens at times. Some of them take a while. You know, a lot of us have a lot of blockage around the hearts, for example. So I I know I have sat with a sense of tension around my heart for hours and hours and hours and hours, over years, right? And over time, that opens up. Because we tune in partly 
we become more sensitive and we tune into that which we may not be aware of just in the rush of daily life. So that does happen. And, and so n- noticing that it actually changes, it's not simply physical, is important. Sometimes it's not simply physical and it's energetic. There's also something which I wanted to mention, which is not, not explicitly related to your question, but that um, a certain uh, percentage of us have some background in, in, um, uh, with, with traumatic events. And it's quite important in practicing uh, mindfulness to uh, not have the mindfulness be, of the body be a way of re-triggering trauma. That can happen, and it does happen sometimes. You know, and it's, um, it's generally, for example, for some people, the breath may be a compromised area. And it may not actually be skillful to be with the breath. And for, for some people, we may want to be with the body in a place that uh, where things don't arise. It could be just being aware of the hands on the knees or the contact with the, the uh, cushion or the, the chair. Um, so there are many, basically it's saying there are many ways to develop mindfulness and mindfulness of the body. And we, you know, we'd want to be attentive. I don't know, if it may not be that this arises for anyone, but it does it with a certain percentage where mindfulness of the body and just being silent and quiet would take people in to unprocessed trauma. And we'd want to be attentive to that and generally pull back and work with someone who's skillful with that. So that's another thing to be said. Another thing to be said was that, um, I think I mentioned before, the general guideline that we have for sitting with what's uh, unpleasant or difficult in the body is we want to check that there's not, we're not damaging the body. So if it's happening around a place where we know there's an injury, we don't really stay there. Or one guideline which I use is if we sit and there's strong sensation and we maybe stay with something for a while and after we get up, 5, 10, 15 minutes later, it's all gone, it's most likely fine. If it actually, a half hour later, we still feel the sensation, that may not be a good idea to stay with that strong sensation. That's a guideline that that I use. So... um, probably gave you more of a response than you counted on, but it's, uh, it's generally, to, generally to stay with it and, uh, and be skillful. And staying with unpleasant sensations of the body is for most of us who, I think, not, maybe not all of us, but many of us grew up with um, a lot of focus on comfort and almost like unpleasant sensation in the body. Get rid of it. <laughs> Alert. <laughs> Right, take a drug, <laughs> right? And that's in the culture quite a bit. And I noticed, and you may have noticed that if you've traveled to other cultures where things are a little less comfortable. Did you notice that? That we may be, in Buddhist language, you say, maybe a little bit attached to comfort, <laughs> right? And I've, I've certainly noticed that. I particularly noticed it traveling to the former Soviet Union where they actually didn't have a lot of toilet paper. That's true. And, and, a lot of, and they didn't have a lot of things. It's actually, I've traveled in Asia, it's been actually quite a bit better. Um, but even there, those places, you can, you can you know, I can think of um, staying at a uh, kind of retreat workshop in Thailand where they just, I think they just had us sleep in the normal way people would sleep, which is like 30 to a room. 
with people like one foot away. <laughs> Someone's head one foot away, so am I uncomfortable? <laughs> Could look into it, right? <laughs> Some inner inquiry. So it's just to say that for most of us, actually being willing to stay with unpleasant sensations is important learning. And actually to learn, partly through developing concentration, and partly just through hanging with it to, say, to start to start not to just go, the mind says, discomfort, get rid of it, right? But actually to stay with the unpleasant and just to see it at the level of sensation. It's actually revelatory, can be. You know, and we, we develop the capacity to be with what's unpleasant, which serves us tremendously when we actually can't get rid of the unpleasant, right? Yeah. So, interesting area. Uh, please, yeah. I was just going to add to that, that um, when you take the label away from it, yeah. that sensation, this pain, it's not pain, just that sensation, yeah. the label makes it worse. So the comment was that, that the, the label makes a huge difference, that to call, just to say sensation, like if you're being with unpleasant sensation, just say to yourself sensation and stay with it. And um, when you use a label like bad, pain, or some other label, just watch your mind. There'll be a tendency to use label, a label, in a way which is not right at the level of direct experience. And a lot of the practices that we're doing here try to get us away from the concepts and more into the direct experience. That's what mindfulness of the body is about. That's the big one. So let me just take, there was one person at the back. Let me take that person and then we'll, then we'll go to lunch. Actually, I have one a set of announcements, then we'll go to lunch. Yeah. Hi. When you were reviewing the breath practices um, and the wisdom teachings, how to draw the wisdom teachings into it, yeah. you named three things. I missed one. I have impermanence, interdependence, and then there was another. The, the second one is understanding the roots of suffering. Uh, suffering is understood more as that compulsive reaction. Suffering is not the same as the presence of the unpleasant. There's kind of an important, almost like technical distinction here. That uh, when we talk about transforming suffering, we're not talking about getting rid of the unpleasant, but we're talking about the capacity to be with the unpleasant at times without reactivity. You know, it could be, in the long run, it means to be able to be mindful of unpleasant sensations when we, you know, our wisdom says it's okay to be with it. It's going to, you know, it's not going to damage me. And I'm just with it. Uh, it could be hunger, could be, you know, strong sensations in the knee, could be what you're describing, and just to be with it. And then suffering would be when I react, when I tighten, when I clench, when I, I don't want this. Let's get rid of this. Why did I come here with the mindfulness of the body? I should have you know, stayed home and watched tennis or something. <laughs> uh, you know, and that, that's, that's called suffering. Uh, and, and also very crucial, a lot of the being able to be with the unpleasant, not just true at the level of the body, it's to be with unpleasant emotions. Sometimes we have anger or sadness or grief. And the training also points towards being able to hang out with those and not run away, and not try to just immediately get rid of them. So that's the general approach with mindfulness, as I mentioned, to be able to be with whatever comes up. Again, there's a place to be skillful. We can distinguish, as, as with uh, Sophia's question, 
between being mindful and then skillful response. Right? And it's not to say never respond, but a lot of our training is to be is to learn to be mindful. Okay, so um, a few announcements before lunch. It's already lunchtime, <laughs> and there was. Uh, I'll just read before. Also to say, we've we've emphasized the unpleasant. Uh, you have to be in doing mindfulness body. You also have to be open to bliss. Are you open to bliss and joy? Yes. yes. Okay. Because uh, that also occurs. And one of the quotes I have is from a, a Thai teacher named Chan Mun. He said, he found a cave of wonders of endless happiness in his body. As he gazed throughout the cave of wonders, his own body, his suffering was destroyed, his fear is appeased. Right? And so there is one of, one of the developments that does occur as the mind gets more quiet and the body opens up, is a tremendous amount of joy and bliss can arise. You know, as just the natural property, you know, scientists will tell us what's happening with the endorphins and all that. But it's, it's quite, um, it's part of the experience as well. So we actually open up to more of what's unpleasant at times, but also more of what is extremely beautiful and pleasant and joyful. That's also part of it. So it's actually... Mindfulness body just deepens our practice in both of those ways, deepens our experience. Okay, so in a moment we'll have lunch. Uh, any, did anyone come without having brought your lunch? Okay, great. You can eat in here. You can eat outside. Um, you may choose to uh, be silent for uh, part or all of the uh, about next hour. It'll be probably, yeah, it'll be about a little less than an hour. Uh, you can choose to be silent or you can choose to uh, be part, silent for your eating and then maybe talk with someone the last half of the uh, lunchtime. You, or, if, or if it's better for you, if there's something important, you could, you could actually talk. And so just to know that everyone will have a choice as to uh, how much silence or how much talking and um, just, you know, just respect someone if the person wants to stay in silent, silence. You know, this is a community where you can just say, I'm in silent and there's nothing more to be said. Right? No explanation. No, no one will hopefully look at you and, oh, wanna, you're weird. Okay. okay. Um, so, uh, and then uh, for the lunch, stay at the level of mindfulness of the body. Right? Stay at the level of mindfulness of the body. Be with the taste the smells, you can even feel, you know, if, uh, the food, if, you're, uh, if it's something you're touching. Work with the full range of experiences of mindfulness of the body. After your meal, if you want to, you can mindfully, mindfully take a nap. You can take a nap in here. There are pillows back there. Take a nap. You can take a walk. Try to stay with mindfulness of the body in whatever you do, so that it's a really a whole day of training. And here, for the next uh, little less than an hour, we're also experimenting on how to bring mindfulness of the body into more informal activities, right? Where you're kind of on your own. So, okay. So, last thing I want to say, I want to say a little bit about the uh, practice of dhamma. We can turn it, turn it off now. Okay. Um, how many of you are familiar with the practice of dhamma or generosity? And how many of you are not so familiar with that practice? Okay, so, some. So this is a, a practice that is an important one. 
Uh, dana is a Pali word that means generosity, or usually translated that, that way. And it's a general, it's one of the qualities that we try to develop, uh, you know, along with patience, compassion, mindfulness, wisdom, and so forth. And it's actually listed uh, first in a list called the paramis, which are like, we could say, the core virtues to be developed. And most generally it means generosity of spirit, sort of wanting to offer uh, ourselves to, to others, you know, to help, basically to help others. And it really is connected with a sense of interdependence. And we also uh, use that as a basis for, for a lot of the economics of um, Spirit Rock and other places. When I stayed, for example, at monasteries in Thailand, everything worked with the dana system and has for about tw- almost 2,600 years in the Buddhist tradition. It also is something that one finds in other traditions as well. Um, and so when I stayed at this, uh, when I stayed at monasteries, uh, I was freely offered uh, a cabin to stay in. I was freely offered teaching. I was freely offered food. There was no bill. It's worked like that for almost 2,600 years. And I think the idea was to not make spirituality part of the marketplace, you know, which is, obviously it is at times in many settings. And I've also experienced that um, I used to live in uh, Kentucky, where I taught for about four years. And when I was there, I would go to the Abbey of Gethsemane, where Thomas Merton was a monk. And probably many of you know Merton is a great Catholic contemplative. And I would actually uh, very often uh, go to the monastery. I would do retreats there. I got to know a lot of the monks. And there were nearby nuns at the uh, uh, convent called Sisters of Loretto. And also when I was there, there was no bill. In both settings, there was an understanding that we don't want to have this be part of the marketplace. We want to have, uh, you know, if people want to support it, that's a possibility. And the same thing, it was unsaid in Thailand when I was there. And uh, and yet I saw it happening. There was a free giving, you know. The the monks um, and nuns would be with the townspeople every weekend. They'd be talking and probably sharing things. And the monks and nuns would bring food. And there's a tradition every morning uh, at most of the monasteries in Thailand where the monks or nuns would go out walking silently in a procession with their bowls. And, their, and the townspeople would be there and give them food for the day. That's been going on for 25, 2600 years. And uh, the same thing in, in, in the Catholic tradition. It was every, the, the monastery was really supported in part by people's offerings. You know, on retreats particularly, it was like that. And so we've tried to do a version of that here where we, uh, where we have basic fees for like the day or if you do a retreat that are part of a break-even nonprofit budget. And so there is a fee for the day uh, and that goes to help keep Spirit Rock uh, going. And in this case, uh, me or I as the teacher am actually paid nothing by Spirit Rock. The fee goes just to have that break-even budget. Same thing for retreats. And there's an option, there's a possibility of offering support uh, for the teacher at retreats. It also includes the retreat staff. Um, and, there's, uh, and there's that um, possibility. And in fact, that is, for me as a teacher, about 90% of my income is from people making offerings like that. 
You know, I actually do one-on-one work on the same basis. And I work with groups. It's all on that model of I offer the teaching and then people make offerings. And it generally, you know, as we get to know it better, it generally works pretty well. And so, uh, so that's, the, that's the story. There's some places where I go where they insist on paying me. Where they say, where they're just done on a different basis, like universities or I do a little bit of work with people at Kaiser and they, they, they say, what's your fee? <laughs> we figure it out. So, but uh, otherwise, there, there's that opportunity and it's very much appreciated because it's like I say, it's, it really helps keep me or keeps other teachers doing what we're doing. It can be a little confusing, you know, what's an appropriate amount for a day? You know, so... Um, what I generally do, because I'm on your side a lot, I do retreats, I go to um, workshops and so forth, which are on this basis, and I offer Donna myself. So I'm on your side as well, and almost all the teachers are on both sides. And so what I do as a practice, I try to say what feels like too little and what feels like too much. And it's kind of an intuitive practice to have a sense of what, what seems right. So I'll just, maybe I'll just stop with that. And, uh, and again, thank you in advance for any support. And you can make the offerings anytime for the rest of the day. It's, I think it's in a basket outside, right? So, and there are different ways of, of the instructions are, are there. So thank you. Thank you for that. And we'll come back. Uh, is, let's come back about, uh, is one is about uh, 50, 55 minutes enough for you? Okay. We'll come back at 1.35, and uh, we'll, we'll go into a sitting. So, thank you. Will you ring a bell? We'll ring a bell uh, 10 minutes before that. We'll ring a bell at 1.25, outside and inside. Okay. Thank you. Hi. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.